Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is engineering and producing today's program. Today we're going to talk with retired senior judge Tom Cole. He walked the El Camino. If you don't know what that means, we'll explain it when he joins us later this hour. Uh, we'll talk about why he made this um, 500-mile trek uh, and what he learned along the way. It really is fascinating. In fact, you can go to the website uh, named after his book, Losing Megan, and uh, you can trace his steps there from the first, well, actually from the days before he actually arrives as he's contemplating the trip right up through uh, that uh, very long trek. This is a pilgrimage that's been in existence for over a thousand years, and it's just fascinating to read the encounters he had along the way, the things that he learned will be Talking about that with him when he joins us later this hour. We're also going to talk with Jim Roberts. He's a research fellow for economic freedom and growth in the U.S. Uh, regarding, uh, uh, rather, on the U.S.-Mexican trade agreement announced yesterday and uh, where Canada fits into this, um, this whole thing. We'll take a look at some of the items to watch for um, in this um, agreement in its infancy. So we'll put it that way. Taking a look at some of the developing news stories, Justice Department official Bruce Orr is scheduled to, or did testify rather behind closed doors today before Congress about his alleged ties to the largely discredited Steele dossier and the Department of Justice knowledge of the salacious Trump document. And voters in Arizona, in Florida and Oklahoma went to the polls in primary elections today to select candidates in closely watched Senate and gubernatorial races. Some of those numbers are just now starting to come in. And in an interview with Fox News, an emotional Senator Lindsey Graham opened up about the death of his friend, Senator John McCain, and promised to give his close friend the send-off he deserves. President Trump announced today that the United States and Mexico have reached a tentative new trade agreement that would replace NAFTA and may in fact be renamed. And Lanny Davis, former Trump attorney Michael Cohen's lawyer, has admitted being an anonymous source for a bombshell CNN story on the infamous Trump Tower meeting after backpedaling on the Trump-Russian collusion claims. And disgraced former Today host Matt Lauer is uh, reportedly telling fans that he will be returning to television. First, Bruce Orr, Justice Department official Orr, uh, testified before uh, behind rather closed doors today before the House Oversight and Judiciary Committees about his uh, connection to the largely discredited uh, Steele dossier containing salacious allegations regarding candidate um, uh, Donald Trump and his ties to Russia. In recent weeks, the president has tweeted about Orr, calling him a disgrace and has suggested he may revoke his security clearance. Orr's testimony was highly anticipated for good reason. His connections to the Steele dossier are significant. His wife, Nellie, is a former contractor for Fusion Fusion GPS, the research company that worked with ex-British spy Christopher Steele to compile that infamous dossier. And conservatives have accused Orr, who was uh, once former associate deputy attorney general, of having a conflict of interest during the presidential campaign because of his wife's work. The dossier was used by federal officials to justify the surveillance of a Trump aide, Carter Page, paid for by Hillary Clinton's campaign and the Democratic National Committee. Now, Orr was uh, demoted once. Uh, The DOJ learned about his communication with Christopher Steele, Fusion GPS founder Glenn 
Simpson. Uh, Fox News had reviewed a collection of his emails, texts and handwritten notes, and they indicate that he was deeply connected to that dossier as well as to its author or wrote that Steele was very concerned about former FBI director James Comey's firing, afraid they will be exposed. And that's a quote. The or documents also shed more light on Steele's activities before the presidential election. And voters headed to the polls to in uh, closely watched primary races in Arizona, Florida, Oklahoma today. Arizona Republicans will decide who will be the winner of one of the most bruising primaries this election season as candidates fight to get the party's nod to replace outgoing Senator Jeff Flake. In the race, two-term Republican, or rather Representative Martha McSally, who is also a Republican, has emerged as the frontrunner as she fends off challenges from the right in the form of former state Senator Kelly Ward and Sheriff Joe Arpaio. But whoever wins the primary will face a tough Democratic challenge as Democrats eye the state as one of uh, the states they can flip in November. And in Florida, five Democratic candidates are vying for Florida GOP Governor Rick Scott's seat in today's primary. However, the crowded Democratic race arguably has been overshadowed by the Republican primary, where Representative Ron DeSantis is wielding a Trump endorsement against Agriculture Commissioner Adam Putman. Putnam, rather. Still, uh, they rate the race for the open seat of a a toss-up in November as Democrats eye a potential pickup. In Oklahoma, the race for the GOP nomination in the race for governor could hinge on the state's geography and the candidate's alliance to President Trump. Longtime Oklahoma City Mayor Mick Cornett and Gateway Mortgage Company founder Kevin Stitt, they've touted their conservative credentials as they are seeking to replace term-limited GOP Governor Mary Fallon. Uh, Cornett has uh, come under fire from Stitt, of course, that's what campaigns do, who attacked the former mayor in one uh, in one ad as not being supportive enough of Trump or his immigration policies. Hmm. I am better off for having known John McCain, a visibly shaken Senator Lindsey Graham, reminisced about the late state senator uh, senator um, in an interview. And then later on the Senate floor, the South Carolina Republican acknowledged he shed many tears over McCain's death, but vowed to give his longtime friend and colleague the send off he deserves when he takes to the Senate floor, which he did earlier today. I have cried a lot and I'm going to try to get over it. He did sound rather weepy throughout. Graham told Hannity that uh, now I'm going to speak in the uh, Senate uh, uh, at McCain's desk as it was um, right next to mine, or at least near mine, and I hope I don't crack up. Well, he did just a little bit. Well, Lanny Davis, the high-powered attorney of President Trump's longtime fixer-turned-foe, Michael Cohen, has admitted he was an anonymous source for a bombshell CNN story on the infamous 2016 Trump Tower meeting after the Washington Post outed him as a source for its own story. He's now recanted and said, well, he misspoke. He didn't actually know what he claimed to have known. He told uh, BuzzFeed News on Monday night he regretted being the anonymous source as well as his subsequent denial. The CNN story, which cited multiple sources, claimed Cohen said President Trump knew in advance about the Trump Tower sit-down. I made a mistake, Davy, uh, da- uh, Davis rather told BuzzFeed. Well, CNN, which has stood by its reporting, did not immediately respond to requests for comment. But Davis spent recent days walking back his bombshell assertion that his client could tell special counsel Robert Mueller that uh, Trump had prior knowledge of the meeting with a Russian lawyer discussing potentially damaging information on Hillary Clinton. 
And President Trump on Monday said he plans to terminate the existing North American Free Trade Agreement as he announced a new tentative agreement between the United States and Mexico that he described as one of the largest trade deals ever made. I'll be terminating the existing deal and going into this deal, the president said in the Oval Office, calling it a big day for trade. Well, the president said, we'll see if Canada can still be part of the trade pact, leaving open the possibility of separate agreements. The president said he wanted to get rid of the name NAFTA because it has bad connotations. And he says he plans to call the deal the United States-Mexico Trade Agreement instead. That's if it's a bilateral agreement. But if Canada signs on, you'd have to come up with something else. And disgrace today, anchor Matt Lauer is telling supporters that he will be back on television. Sources told Page Six that Lauer, who was fired in November by NBC over sexual harassment accusations, was recently spotted at an old haunt of his. Um, telling fans that his return was imminent. A group of older ladies came over to Lauer saying, we miss you, a source said. The uh, source said that uh, Lauer told the fans, I've been busy being a dad, but don't worry, I'll be back on TV, end quote. Reports have said that Lauer is hoping for a comeback. He also apparently still has some supporters in broadcasting. Page Six report uh, reported rather in June that Lauer was seen at lunch with former Today senior producer. And on this day in 1963, more than 200,000 people listened as Reverend Do- Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. delivered his I Have a Dream speech in front of the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. And on this day in 1955, Emmett Till, a black teenager from Chicago, was abducted from his uncle's home in Money, Mississippi, by two men after he had supposedly whistled at a white woman. He would then be found brutally slain three days later. Years later, the white woman, accusing him of having whistled at her, recanted. And on this day in 2005, New Orleans Mayor Ray Nagin orders everyone in the city to evacuate after Hurricane Katrina grew into a monster storm, but only after it grew into a monster storm. Well, coming up later this hour, we're going to talk with retired senior judge Tom Cole walking the El Camino. Now, this is a long, grueling walk, but when you walk it with a purpose, well, it makes a difference. By the way, 500 miles, that's uh, as if you were walking from Portland to Boise, Idaho, and then you add 70 miles to it. It takes about 40 days. He has the blister uh, to prove he actually made the trek. We'll talk with him about that when he joins us later this hour. 17 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 22 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later this hour, retired senior judge Tom Cole walking the El Camino, thousand-year tradition. Well, Justice Department official Bruce Orr testified to lawmakers on the House Oversight and Judiciary Committees today about his relationship with former British spy Christopher Steele and his ties to the salacious uh, anti-Trump dossier. Well, Orr didn't respond to reporters' questions as he arrived for the closed-door session, nor when he left. And while lawmakers told reporters that Orr was being cooperative, Representative Daryl Issa said that Orr was a poor, or rather has, a poor memory. He seems to not remember a lot of details, and, you know, poor memories are often claimed by people who want to stick to what they uh, what they can say and not be caught on perjury, uh, he says. Well, Republicans allege that Orr played a key role in selling the dossier commissioned by Fusion GPS and paid for by the uh, Hillary Clamp, uh, the Clinton campaign and the Democratic National Committee. They were expected to ask why Orr broke with protocol and kept up communication with its author, Steele, long after the FBI fired him as a source in late 2016 due to his contacts with the media. I don't know if it's improper 
Harper, but I want to know who at the DOG knew, and it uh, certainly looks like he continued to meet with Mr. Steele, Mr. Steele after the FBI had terminated that relationships, uh, relationship singular. He said Representative uh, Matt Gates uh, told reporters during a break in the proceedings that there are conflicts between Orr's testimony and that of former FBI lawyer Lisa Page and Fusion's Glenn Simpson about the handling of evidence and the timing. Simpson told the House Intelligence Committee that he had no contact with Orr until Thanksgiving of 2016, while emails reviewed uh, show contact in August. Investigators are also probing Orr's relationship with Simpson. Orr's wife, Nellie, worked for Fusion GPS as a Russian specialist and did research that formed part of that dossier. Government officials are not allowed to take action in their official capacity that financially benefit family members, and Nellie was understood to be receiving significant income from Fusion GPS. Orr has become a key point of contention for Republicans and the president who see the revelation about uh, Orr as the latest development that calls into question the FBI's actions that led to the beginning of the Russian probe. The dossier was used by federal officials to justify the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act or FISA warrant on Trump aide Carter Page. The fundamentals don't change the fact that a top Department of Justice official's wife is working for the firm the Clintons hired to put together the dossier and the FBI uses that dossier that they're getting from Bruce Orr to then get out, um, or rather go out uh, uh, and get a warrant to spy on the Trump campaign, Jordan said. So that's a big concern. Who at the DOJ knew that? My understanding is the uh, closed door session will continue tomorrow in Washington with Mr. Orr. And sources are telling us that a Chinese-owned company operating in Washington, D.C., in that area, hacked Hillary Clinton's private server throughout her term as Secretary of State and obtained nearly all her emails. Two sources briefed on the matter are now saying, well, the Chinese firm obtained her emails in real time as she sent and received communications and documents through her personal server, according to the sources, who said the hacking was conducted as part of an intelligence operation. The Chinese wrote code that was embedded in the server, which was kept in Clinton's residence in upstate New York. The code generated an instant courtesy copy for nearly all of her emails and forwarded them to the the Chinese company, according to sources. The Intelligence Committee Inspector General found that Virtually all of Clinton's emails were sent to a foreign entity. Representative uh, Louis Gomart of Texas said in a July 12th House committee uh, on the judiciary hearing, he did not reveal the entity's identity, but said it was unrelated to Russia. Well, two officials of the uh, with the ICIG investigator Frank Rucker and attorney Jeanette McMillan met repeatedly with FBI officials to warn them of the Chinese intrusion, according to a former intelligence officer with expertise in cybersecurity issues, who was um, uh, and were a brief briefing on the matter. He spoke anonymously as he was not authorized to publicly address the Chinese role with Clinton's server. Well, among those FBI officials was Peter Strzok, who was uh, then the Bureau's top counterintelligence official. Uh, Strzok was fired this month following the discovery he sent anti-Trump texts to his uh, mistress and co-worker Lisa Page. Strzok didn't act on the information the ICIG provided him, according to Gomert. Well, Gomert uh, mentioned in the Judiciary Committee hearing that the ICIG official told Strzok and three other top FBI officials that they found an anomaly on Clinton's server. The former intelligence officer, the DCNF, spoke uh, with uh, said ICIG, um, discovered the anomaly pretty early in 2015. When they... Um, 
did a very deep dive. They found an actual metadata, the data which uh, is at the header and footer of an all emails, uh, that a copy, a courtesy copy, was being sent to a third party, and that third party was known Chinese public company that was involved in collecting intelligence for China, the former intelligence officer has said. Well, the ICIG believed that there was some level of phishing, but once they got into the server, something was embedded, he said. The Chinese are notorious for embedding little surprises like this. The intelligence officer declined to name the Chinese company, but an interesting development in this back and forth on who did what to whom and why, and I suppose also how. Well, as I mentioned, Senator Lindsey Graham paid tribute to the late U.S. Senator John Kane. John McCain on the Senate floor today. McCain died on Saturday night at the age of 81 after a year-long battle with brain cancer. He was diagnosed last July with a brain tumor following a procedure earlier in the year. Well, after reciting what he called dumb jokes between the two, Graham went further in describing the type of man the Arizona senator was. He said that McCain, who survived five years as a prisoner of war, became a statesman who forgave and healed. He added that McCain was a popular, was as popular as Elvis Presley in Vietnam, where he was imprisoned. I remember him embracing a, a war that nobody wanted to talk about because he understood what it would cost to lose it, Graham said. He went on to say that McCain had wanted to and was prepared to become president in 2008, but that the Oval Office was not his to be had. John taught us how to lose, he said, recalling McCain's concession speech after losing to Barack Obama. He healed the nation at a time it uh, it was hurt. Graham concluded his remarks by saying that without McCain, he'll be uh, on a lonely journey for a while and that he shouldn't be uh, looked upon to replace his dear friend. If you want to help me, join the march. If you want to help the country, be more like John McCain. He said, we won't have time, I don't think, to get into it before our break here. And then we'll have a conversation with retired senior judge Tom Cole. Uh, But the Catholic abuse scandal is now a major Vatican issue. We're going to talk about that later in the program, if time permits, as well as why uh, we as Protestants, and I say we, believing that the majority of our listeners are, but not all, uh, should be concerned about it. We'll get into that and much more later in the five o'clock hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Once again, we're going to talk about walking the El Camino with retired senior judge Tom Cole when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show about 34 minutes after 4 o'clock. Glad to have you uh, have you with us this afternoon. Well, I'm really excited about our conversation, which we intended to have a couple of weeks ago when you were here. And we ended up talking about other things and ran out of time. But uh, for those of you who don't know, my guest, a retired senior judge, Tom Cole, took Uh, Something of a pilgrimage, walking the El Camino. Now, to some of our listeners, that immediately springs to mind, the the journey that you took, which is about 500 miles. Others, they're scratching their heads. He took a car somewhere? What are we talking about? So let's begin with what walking the El Camino is and why you chose to take this very long trek. And we're not just talking about walking down the street. We're talking about, in some cases, very challenging terrain. Yeah, yeah, it was... uh... Why I did it, uh, I saw a movie called The Way probably four years ago with Martin Sheen in it, and it was about the Camino itself. And so uh, the Camino's been around for, I think, 1,500 years, and it was originally done as sort of a penance for Catholics. Uh, They had to walk from their home to uh, Santiago de Compostela to the cathedral there and then prove that they walked that, and that was part of the penance, and they would come back and, and show their priests that uh, they had actually done the walk that they were supposed to do. So 
I was inspired by that, and then I was inspired by reading about it. I was inspired by my sister-in-law, Catherine Boone, who actually did it uh, in November of last year. And so that inspired you to do the same. Now, you kept a journal that was on your your website, Losing Megan. And I uh, want listeners to know that you can actually go to that Facebook page, I should say, the Facebook page, and go back to before you started it a day or two where you explain a little bit behind uh, the reason behind your doing it and then follow you along that journey, which I found absolutely fascinating. It was uh, something that I began praying about it. And God put uh, three words on my heart uh, when I was thinking about going there. Uh, Those words were go, ask, and listen. And so God was giving me permission to go, and then he wanted me to ask people that I ran into what their story was and then to really listen to how they responded to that. And so that was kind of the outward part of that journey, and then the inward part was was going and then asking God what he wanted me to learn and listening to what he had to say to me. Now, he didn't speak verbally to me, but he certainly spoke to me through through the circumstances that I was in, uh, the surroundings that I was in, and just, just through his spirit. Mm-hmm. You write um, in one of your early entries, my reason for walking the El Camino is to get to know God better and to share his love and truth with fellow pilgrims along the way. But God may have other reasons. It's not unusual for God's purposes Uh, It's not unusual for God's purposes are different than mine. I've started testing my walking endurance. Uh, He said you wrote that you were getting psyched up to begin uh, the adventure of the El Camino. April of 2018, uh, you decided that's when it was going to be. Um, beginning in southern France, ending in Santiago, Spain, 500 miles, which is roughly equivalent to walking from Portland to Boise and then add 70 miles. Yeah, that's what it is. <laughs> How daunting was it for you just thinking about, anticipating, arriving, and then starting that very long journey? Well, I was pretty naive about it. I, You know, I thought, well, walking from here to, to Boise plus 70 miles, you know, I, I could do that. And so uh, I trained by going to my gym and, and walking around the gym, uh, you know, a couple of miles every day. And I thought, boy, I'm really doing well here. <laughs> uh, I had a rude awakening when I started the walk on, on the morning of April 18th of 2018 from a little town in France called saint jean pied port Now, I want to revisit what you said uh, earlier. Part of your goal was to go, to ask, and to listen. You went with a purpose of having encounters, not only with God, but with others who are on the pilgrimage with you. Now, I assumed before I read your journal that virtually everyone who goes is, is walking in order to, to grow closer to God. Uh, but that was not the case. There were all kinds of people, those who were believers, those who were unbelievers, those who had real questions about their faith and everything in between that were part of this uh, this trek. Did you find a pattern among those who were uh, taking this very long um, pilgrimage? Most of the people that I ran into on the way uh, were people who were uh, just they're trying to uh, experience something in life. They just felt like something was missing. A lot of them were uh, Catholics who were no longer uh, practicing Catholicism. It was an old Catholic Catholic pilgrimage years ago. And so my prayer was that God would give me opportunities every day to meet with people, to share the story of him and his son, and to just encourage people along the way. And so he gave me those opportunities every day to, to meet new people and to share share stories with them. I loved reading the stories about the encounters that you had with people. 
Uh, and it was interesting how those conversations uh, oftentimes uh, began. You reflect on Pilgrim's Progress early in your journey and the lessons learned there. How do you relate Pilgrim's Progress to your journey uh, from one location to another at some distance? Well, it's just uh, just the people that I ran into. Uh, I mean, it, it you don't. I didn't realize I'd never been closer to God than what I was to Him on this this journey, this five hundred mile walk, and so. Uh, it, it was just amazing every day to see what he had in, had in store for me. Uh, I knew that uh, uh, that it would take one step at a time, uh, and that that walking is you, you know when you when you walk you just take one step at a time. Eventually you get to where you're going, but it's the journey that that really matters, not not where you're going. And so each day was a new day to me, and each day God provided opportunities for me to meet meet new people. One of the scriptures that inspired you early on and throughout was Psalms 139, 23 and 24. Familiar to many of us, search me, O God, and know my heart. How did that um, How did that scripture resonate with you as you began and throughout your journey? I began praying that prayer uh, probably a couple of weeks before I left. Uh, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me. And then lead me to the way everlasting. I believe that's probably one of the most dangerous prayers we can pray. You know, certainly God knows our heart, but when we ask him, invite him in into our hearts and ask him to search it and see if there is any offensive way, he is going to show us. And so what you do with what he shows you, I think, is really the important part of that, of that, that journey, that prayer, that quest. You write on uh, day one, the first leg of uh, your trip was the most difficult. It was 27 miles. I'm not sure if that still holds up. 27 kilometers. I'm sorry, 27 kilometers. I'm not sure if that holds up after some of the other days I read about. But talk about that first leg of the journey, which was most difficult. It was. Uh, so I started out at 9 o'clock in the morning uh, from a, that little that town called saint jean pied port And it's an all-uphill climb uh, through the Pyrenees. It's a pass through the Pyrenees, and you eventually end up in a town called Rosenvalle, Spain. It's about 27 kilometers, and it is all uphill. Uh, about halfway through the day, I began to question, what the heck am I doing here? This, <laughs> this was really difficult. You know, I didn't, have a, I didn't practice with a backpack, so I had a backpack with me. Uh, I was very naive about it. But it was extremely difficult. Uh, it, toward the end of the day, my goal was to walk 50 steps and then catch my breath and then walk another 50 steps and catch my breath. And eventually... Uh, at 8 o'clock in the evening, I arrived at Ransomvalle, Spain, uh, which was 27 kilometers away. You mentioned that you questioned, what on earth am I doing? Which is such, such a metaphor for uh, life, that sometimes we begin the journey, we're excited about it at the beginning, but we don't realize how difficult it can be. Any life lessons from just that first day of a very long series of days of walking? Uh, the life lesson would be uh, to prepare not be so naive and prepare a little bit more for any adventure you're going to do like that. Uh, you know, eventually with walking like that, your body will catch up with what you're doing. And, and that's what I read uh, about on the Camino, that even though you may not be in really good shape to do the walk, eventually your body is going to get used to that routine that you go through every day, getting up in the morning, putting on your backpack and walking anywhere from 22 to 28 kilometers. One of the things that you had prayed for was to have divine appointments along the way, encounters with fellow travelers, in addition to deepening your walk with the Lord. And I found that fascinating in your uh, in your journal that um, there were fellow pilgrims along the way, and you purposed to listen to their story 
and then to share yours. And uh, again, reading how these encounters um, began and the opportunities that God gave you to to share uh, your story was really remarkable. Can you share a couple of them with us? Yeah, I, I can. I can uh, one that really sticks out in my memory is a situation where I had, had completed the day. I was sitting at a, a table uh, drinking a beer, and, and I saw some other guy across on another table drinking a beer, and I, I just felt the Spirit nudging me over to him, and so I went over and I introduced myself to him. And, and, and everybody on the Camino has a reason for being on the Camino. Mine was more of an evangelical reason, but everybody has a reason. If you don't have one in the beginning, uh, I guarantee you you'll pick up one within the first week that, you, that, that you're on the walk. So his reason, I asked him, his reason was he was going to be separating from his wife and he wanted some clarity and wisdom from God. Is he doing the right thing? You know, I mean, he probably mm-hmm. knew that he wasn't. And so uh, we ended up talking for a while. And then he, he mentioned that uh, his relationship with his wife really got worse when they lost their, their son, who was 20 years old at the time. He was uh, drowned. He was with some college friends of his. They were drinking. Uh, his his tu- they were tubing, and so that his tube was tipped over, and he never came up, and so that had happened four years before he and I met. Well, that gave me an opportunity to tell him the story about my daughter Megan, who was murdered when she was twenty one years old, and we kind of shared that experience. Uh, I had a chance to pray with him, and I did, and then then we started talking a little bit more about who we were, and and uh, uh, I mentioned that I had played football at Kentucky, and he told me that he had a cousin that played basketball at Kentucky. And I said, well, when did he play? And he played about the same time I did. And I said, well, what was your cousin's name? And and uh, he told me. And I said, no, he didn't play basketball. He played football. And he says, no, Tom, I know my cousin played basketball. That was his main sport in high school. And I said, no, no, Don, he played football because he was my roommate. <laughs> and so, you know, here you are uh, on the other side of the world, on a Camino walking with somebody and God was, I could see God just sort of smiling, you know, saying, this is how I connect people. And so he brought us together uh, to share our experiences with the loss of a child, you know, to have us meet each other. And so I still, I still communicate with Don yet today. That's so, amazing. Yeah. And as your, uh, your journal indicates, there are so many people who were on that pilgrimage for very different reasons. There were some who had lost their faith in God, some who had no faith in God and always you led with, Tell me your story. And many of them were surprised that they'd never been asked that question before. Yeah, they were just kind of flabbergasted. Uh, I, I remember some uh, German uh, young woman I was talking to one night, and, and I, I said, hey, hey, Frederica, what's your story? And she looked at me and had this, she spoke pretty good English, and she had this quizzical look on her face. She says, what do you mean, what's my story? And I said, well, you know, who are you? What, you know, how did you get here? Uh, you know, what's your story? You know, tell me about yourself. And she said, well, nobody's ever asked me that question before. And I said, well, I am, and I'd love to hear. So about an hour later, after she shared that, uh, she said, well, what's your story? And so so that opened up the door for me to talk to her about what God has been doing in my life and what a great God we worship. So. You make the point in your writing that um, it's a great way to start a conversation, but you don't have to be on the Camino to do that. You can do that right here at home as well. But just have a genuine interest in, in others' stories, and then you earn a right to, to share yours as well. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation. We're talking with retired senior judge Tom Cole. He walked the Camino, uh, which is about 500 kilometers, and it's just it makes me tired just thinking about it. Uh, we'll be back to continue our conversation in a moment. That's 500 miles, isn't it? Yeah. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Once again, talking with retired senior judge Tom Cole. He walked the uh, Camino, as they say, and uh, we're talking about this uh, journey. It wasn't just for the sake of getting a long walk in. You were actually seeking God. You were seeking opportunity to share your faith, and you accomplished that and much, much more over the course of, what, 40 days? Uh, it took me 32 days 32. to walk 500 miles. Yeah. Oh, it's just tire, <laughs> tiring hearing you say that. One of the things you write about is seeing God's creation in a new way. You're not getting in and out of a car. You're not uh, uh, looking at creation, at, at the at nature from a distance. You're in the middle of it, and you get from one place to the other on your two feet. What did you, um, what did you see new in God's creation being in the middle of it? Well, I, I remember one time specifically uh, we were walking up to a, to a farm, and uh, there were a bunch of sheep off in, 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 in the distance in a, in a pasture. And looking back on it, I think there were probably four or 500 sheep, and they were all together. And, and I had never seen that many sheep before. This was in Bass Country. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, so then at, at the front of them was a, was, a, was a shepherd with his dog. And you could tell something was going to happen. And they kind of gathered in front of the sheep, and the shepherd sort of made a hand motion, and the dog took off. And all the sheep followed the dog. And I was standing there as hundreds of sheep were, were running by me. And, and it was kind of like a, you know, like a thunderous herd of sheep, you know, <laughs> not cattle, but, but just running by. And it was just so amazing uh, to see those, all those sheep and the sheep following the dog. And the dog would run around and, you know, and, and make sure there weren't any uh, stragglers there mm-hmm. and, and would rein them all in. It was just an amazing sight to see. I'd never seen anything like that before in my entire life. Bass country was absolutely beautiful. Yeah. It was just, just, it was just so inspiring to be there. Yeah. Yeah. Now you went uh, on this, uh, this pilgrimage all by yourself and yet you write about lessons uh, you've learned on companionship along the way. Uh, which reminds us that we are made for community. Talk a bit about the companionship. These are people who are coming and going. You may see the same people at some point at various uh, stages of your walk, but you're meeting new people along the way, re-meeting uh, people along the way. How important was companionship? Well, it was it was really important to me because it, I just felt like God had given me that opportunity to go there uh, to once again to talk about you know what a great God we worship and how how great He is and so I just had that opportunity every every day to talk to people and it was uh, it was each day was different and I remember talking with a, a young uh, uh, Asian uh, man in in an albergue where, where I was staying we had finished up for the day and uh, I had seen him on the trail before but we had this chance to talk and he was a Christian. Uh, he spoke really good English, and he was just kind of struggling uh, with his mm-hmm. faith. And so we had a chance to talk about that. Uh, I had a chance to, his name was Han, and I, I said, Han, would you mind if I prayed for you? And he kind of looked around. We were in this room, and there were other people there, and I know he felt embarrassed about that. And I said, hey, you don't have to bow your head. You don't have to close your eyes. Uh, let me just pray for you right now. And he said, okay. So I you know, I just said a really short prayer for him. And it was just one of those those sweet moments that you just have an opportunity to encourage somebody, a fellow Christian who was struggling a little bit with his faith. And it was just a, an amazing moment, moment in time. 
Mm. And again, you can read uh, all about this on the webpage, Losing Megan, and you can go back to it began, I think, April 18th yes. and read from the beginning or just a few days before all the way through the journey. There are beautiful pictures there, and it's certainly worth taking the journey with them. And it's a lot less painful, let me tell you, <laughs> to, do, <laughs> to do it that way. Now, you um, had uh, wonderful encounters with people along the way, but you also had opportunities where you were walking alone. And you write about one, uh, one instance in which you were walking along, you had an opportunity to pray to pray out loud. You were praying the Our Father, and then you were singing aloud. How was that for you on this journey to have those moments where you were uh, alone with God and you could express your your worship of Him um, along the way as you're journeying towards your goal? I, I, I have never I felt so close to God in my entire life. When this was one day in particular where uh, I was praying that prayer I talked about, Psalm 139, uh, verses 23 to 24. And then I felt God asking me to recite the Lord's Prayer. And so I started talking, or I started reciting the Lord's Prayer. And then I felt he wanted me to say it out loud. And so I looked around to see if anybody was around or near me <laughs> before I did. I was by myself. And I just felt a little, little self-conscious about that. So I started saying it out loud. And then I felt like he wanted me to sing it to him. And I looked around again, uh, and I started singing, singing the Lord's Prayer to him. I had, I had no idea what key I was in. I'm, I'm not a good singer. You wouldn't want to be there. Uh, but uh, uh, so, so then he said, uh, I just felt that he was telling me to write it out in my own words, the Lord's Prayer. And so eventually, uh, I, I, when I got to my uh, bed that evening, the place where I was staying, I was able to write it out. Then I posted it uh, Posted it online. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the things you also wrote was that you hadn't thought as deeply about the Lord's Prayer before, thinking of each line, each phrase, and really internalize what does this mean and kind of rolling it over in your mind. Yeah, yeah. That was the whole what process. What a sweet, sweet time to yes. do that. Yeah, it yeah. was. It was. It, it, that lasted for a couple of hours. I mean, that that was. That's how long that was. So you write that I've learned that it is not the distance but the space between. You made the best use of the time that you had, either talking with people who were traveling with you or spending that time alone with God, yes. um, focusing God, on Him. Yeah, and God taught me many lessons, too, when I was on that. He just gave me really simple illustrations, like the blister story that I've shared before. Uh, um, I, I started to get a blister about my third day. I had like six, five or six blisters during the entire walk. This one blister that I got on the third day, though, stayed with me the whole time on the walk. Uh, uh, and, uh, in fact, it, 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 it stayed with me coming back to the United States. Also, uh, I had actually given it a name. I called it Buster the Blister. So. <laughs> I saw, is that the one I saw the picture yes, of? It this, is, yeah. this was a substantial blister. I probably would have been on a plane home <laughs> two days in after that. Cause it was substantial. Um, you mentioned earlier that you, um, had to pack a, a, a knapsack and that at one point in the journey, um, one of your fellow travelers helped you to repack it or taught you how to carry it differently that made it a bit easier to make along the journey. Yeah, it was about the third day, and I ran into someone, and I was complaining about my— well, I had I had some uh, moaning and groaning moments where I would <laughs> complain about how, how sore my body was, and I was talking about my shoulders and how my backpack was—, was uh, hurting my shoulders. And she kind of looked at me and she said, Hey, can I do something for you? And I said, yeah. And so she came up to me and she pulled some straps that I didn't know I had on my backpack because I bought it online. I didn't, didn't have anybody. It was a really good backpack. Uh, and I didn't have anybody show me how to wear it. And I was wearing it the wrong way. I had not pulled it, the, the straps mm-hmm. up. I had not put the uh, waist, uh, uh, 
uh, strap around my waist tight enough. And so I, it, 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 it was just made all the difference in the world. So as it's I, good to know about that. Yeah, as I was reading that, it reminded me of carrying excess baggage and carrying the supplies well yeah. uh, along a journey like that. Again, so many metaphors for life. It's, it's uh, an amazing story. We're going to take a quick break. We've got news and traffic at the top of the hour. And if you'll consent, I'd love to continue our conversation. I'd love to. All right. Again, we're talking with retired senior judge Tom Cole. He walked the uh, El Camino, which is about a 500-mile trek. And that's like uh, walking from Portland to Boise, plus 70 miles, with lots of hills in between, about a 37, 33-day journey for you. 32. All right. Quick break. News and traffic up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes, make that eight minutes after five o'clock. I'm continuing a conversation we began in the previous hour with retired senior judge Tom Cole. If you didn't have a chance to hear the earlier part of our conversation, you can certainly go to the podcast at kpdq.com. And it's worth uh, worth hearing because this is quite a pilgrimage uh, that he took back in April. Uh, it was a 32-day journey, 500 miles, and uh, quite a quite a pilgrimage if uh, uh, if I do say so. Now, one of the things that we were talking about just before the break was this this notion of um, not having your, your backpack on well and comfortably. Um, you met along the way uh, one man in particular, one young man who was carrying some baggage that he couldn't let go of that really had hindered his life moving forward. Um, the, your backpack, I suppose, is something of a metaphor for that, uh, for that young man unburdening himself. Tell us a bit about that that story and how the two of you connected. Yeah, Keith and I became very good friends uh, along the walk, and and that's what happens on the Camino. Uh, you, the, the masks are removed. You become very transparent with people, and so we became very good friends. He told me about uh, when he was a, uh, a young man uh, around 15 or 16 years old, his best friend was hit by a car in front of his house, and he went out and actually saw the body laying there. And he was never really able to grieve about that in a, in a good way. It, it had been kind of swept under the carpet. So one of the things on the Camino is about halfway through, you come up to this iron cross, they call it, Ferris Cruz. And uh, it's a big pile of stones that are leading up to a pole in the ground with an iron cross on the top. And what people do traditionally on the Camino is they take a rock from their home or a small stone from their home, or they find one on the way, and they carry that with them, and then they walk up to the cross, and they lay that rock down or that stone down as a way of giving up the burdens of this world, just like Jesus. He'll, mm-hmm. he'll take all our burdens from us. And so that was the significance of that iron cross. So as we got closer, Keith had a, had a rock in his, in his pocket. As we got closer and closer to the Iron Cross, like his demeanor got heavier and heavier. You could see that he was really, uh, this was, had a tremendous, tremendous effect on him until the day that we got there. And then we walked up to the top of the stone hill there, and, and Keith took out the rock from his pocket and laid it down. Physically, you could almost see him change mm-hmm. that, that burden uh, being relieved. There were, there were three of us there. We all started crying when Keith, you know, gave up his rock. And, and, and from that day forward, it was like it was gone. That burden mm. was gone that he had of suffering that grief for the loss of his best friend when he was 15 years old. I deposited a rock there also with some of the burdens that I, that I was carrying. And, 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 and God is there 
to take away our burdens. We just have to give them up. A lot of times we hang on too tightly to things and we don't let those things go. We kind of relish in the idea of carrying those burdens with us, but we just have to let go of our hands, open up our hands and let God take those burdens. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that um, God used you to do was to share the story of your own grief and the loss of your daughter and that level of forgiveness uh, resonated with so many of the people that you encounter. They would share their stories, and then they'd ask you to share yours. And uh, hearing the story of the loss of your daughter, your ability to forgive in, in so many of uh, of those conversations led them to really um, have a greater interest in how God can impact. Because you always made it very clear this wasn't just a, a force of will on your part. This was the Holy Spirit of God giving you the capacity to forgive. And that impressed many people who had no claim to faith or had lost their faith along the way. Yeah, it was It was uh, every day I had those opportunities. And every day, not only did I have those opportunities, but could, but God, it seemed like he, he taught me a lesson uh, one day or the next, uh, one, one of the uh, the days I'm referring to is the uh, the day that I got lost, and uh, that was, was day eleven. By that, the way, was that day? 11? Okay, <laughs> so so on day eleven I got lost. And and when I say that, I mean on the Camino there are markers along the way. So it's generally a path anywhere from six to nine feet wide. Sometimes on asphalt, sometimes uh, narrower than that. But uh, what marks the way is a yellow shell, uh, and they call it a scallop. And then there's also a yellow arrow. So you're always looking for those signs that kind of keep you going in the right direction. So one day I was coming out of town. I came to a fork in the road. And I went left at that fork in the road. And then about an hour later, I'm not seeing anybody around me. Oh. And I continue to walk. And I walk. And and uh, there's nobody there. And I'm starting to think, I think I went the wrong way. And so... Uh, I walked a little farther, and then I decided, well, I'm going to turn around. And so uh, I decided to turn around. It was it was kind of stubbornness on my part. I thought, well, I knew where I was going. You know, I I I know the right way. And so, but I turned around, and I figured if I if I was on the right path, I would run into people who would be walking. I'd I'd walk by them, and I didn't didn't run any into any pilgrims along that way. And I got back to that point where the road split. Uh, one going left, one path going left, and one path going right. And then I looked, and I looked harder, and and there I saw the yellow shell and the yellow arrow pointing to the right way. I had taken the left way, and it pointed to the right way. And so I ended up writing a little story about that, and, and God was showing me, I believe, that he has markers in our life that he mm-hmm. puts out in front of us all the time. And we really need to be careful about looking, am I going the way God wants me to go or am I going my way? And sometimes when we go our way, we're a little stubborn. Mm-hmm. Uh, it takes a, a 180 for us to repent and turn around and come back. And so so that God reminded me of that, that he puts markers in our lives and we just need to be careful where we're walking uh, so that we don't don't get lost. So that was a great story that yeah. he told me. Simple. It's a simple story, but but one that really impacted me a lot. Mm. And then you have to be uh, quick to reverse course when you find that you are. On yes. The wrong yeah. Path. That's that's the hardest part. <laughs> <laughs> I continued to walk another half hour. 
In your journal, um, marked Day 18, Perseverance Times 2, you write that you left El Burgo Renero, and I'm sure I mispronounced that, around 7.30 this morning and arrived at the next location at 12.30, about 20 kilometers. Uh, This was my hardest morning, emotionally and spiritually. Each step was a chore. Uh, You write that you uh, felt like you'd lost a connection with God that was was so close through most of this journey. It was your hardest day. You stayed in bed, um, and you had an encounter that you spoke of a few moments ago with the uh, South Korean traveler that you ended up praying with. But talk a little bit about that day when you felt that your connection had somehow been broken. You'd had such an intimacy with God. You were spiritually, emotionally, uh, and physically exhausted. You ended up staying in that location for the day. What what was restorative for you? Was it the encounter with a, a fellow believer who needed encouragement? I think it was. It, it was just God gave me that opportunity. I had missed an opportunity with him before, and so God gave me another opportunity to share his story with that young man. And so that, along with the, just the physical uh, aspects of what I was going through, I had shin splints, I had the blisters, I had sore shoulders, I had a, a knee that was replaced about three years ago, and so that was starting to bother me a little bit too. And I started really feeling sorry for myself, and I had all these aches and pains, and and. When, you, when you're experiencing something like the Camino and experiencing the closeness of God, I mean, it was like I could almost reach out and touch him, like I could almost smell him, like I could almost see him. When, you go, when you're that close to God and then all of a sudden you start thinking about yourself, it's just that separation is so drastic. It's so, it's so mm-hmm. apparent at that point. You've been so close and now, you've, now you're farther away, so... Uh, You wrote that there's room for evangelism on the walk. There's room for evangelism at home. 32 days into the uh, journey, um, 800 kilometers, 500 miles on foot, uh, 17-pound backpack, five blisters, shin splints, bruised toes, shoulders sore, (laughs) knees sore. Um, But you say that your spirit had been renewed and refreshed. What did you ultimately learn on this journey at the Camino? Well, with all of those things that were going on with me, the Camino was much more painful than I ever thought it would be, and yet it was much more rewarding than I ever thought it would be, too. Just the, 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 the idea that the experiences that I had with God and with God's people and with God's country, you know, being able to, to experience those in a way that I had never experienced those before is something that I will never forget. Uh, I would go back again. There, there were, I would have no hesitancy on going back again. I might take it a little bit slower. I might maybe do it in 40 days mm-hmm. rather than 32 days. Uh, but it was just the pace I was going. I didn't feel like I was rushing myself. Uh, but I also realized that we, we have our own Camino here where we live. Uh, we can walk our own Camino every day. Uh, and it's just a matter of taking one step after another and, and, and being aware of God's presence as best you can. And as you... Um as you write, it's not the distance, but the space between. Yes. We're faithful to take the steps that God has prescribed for us, and uh, we'll find him along that journey. It's a fascinating story, and I will, uh, I would encourage our listeners to go to Losing Megan, the Facebook page, and there you can follow this journey in greater detail. I know I was inspired and encouraged and challenged by much of what you have written, and I, uh, I wondered if there might be a book in this for you. I would encourage you to consider writing one. There could be. <laughs> yeah, there could be. Yeah. I, I'm not a, you know, I, I don't I don't write easily, so it's a dif- that's a difficult task for me. But if God said he wanted me to write a book, if, he, if I got that sense, I certainly would try to do it. Well, so. it's, uh, it's wonderful to read. And again, you can find the, uh, the journal 
on Facebook. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Well, thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure coming. For me, too. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll uh, let you in on a couple of the news stories developing. We'll also talk with Jim Roberts. He's a research fellow for Economic Freedom and Growth with the Heritage Foundation. We're going to talk about the U.S.-Mexican trade agreement the president announced yesterday. What does it mean, and where is Canada in all of this? We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. 22 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I just love Judge Tom Cole. Just so fascinating to talk with him. Well, nearly 16 Oregon sheriffs have signed a letter. They've asked voters to repeal the state's sanctuary law. This, of course, relates to the uh, opportunity Oregonians will have in November to decide whether or not we want to remain a sanctuary city. Well, that represents nearly half of the sheriffs in the state of Oregon. They've signed on to the letter, and they're asking voters to repeal the state's 30-year-old sanctuary law this fall. Well, the letter was released on Monday. It says the state's statute undermines respect for law in significant ways. Well, 16 sheriffs signed the letter and suggested that uh, immigrants cause crimes that can't be policed because of the state's law. However, nothing in Oregon sanctuary law prohibits police officers or sheriff's deputies from enforcing the law, investigating crimes or arresting suspects, but they suggest that it's more difficult for them to do so. Well, the state sanctuary law prohibits the use of state and local resources to enforce federal federal immigration law if a person, if their only infraction is being in the country illegally, which is illegal. Numerous research studies show immigrants actually cause fewer or about the same number of crimes, but um, we have sufficient crimes in the community that people um, think adding additional crimes that could be avoided um, should be. Well, that's a, a finding that was held since the early 20th century, says Alec Norosh, an immigrant uh, policy analyst at the libertarian-leaning Cato Institute during an interview in March. In their letter, the sheriffs write that being able to work with federal partners like the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcements would give them more policing options. The sanctuary law tells illegal immigrants that Oregon considers immigration law violations so inconsequential as to be unworthy of police and sheriff attention, the letter states. In doing so, it legitimizes those violations and encourages more. Well, in November, as I mentioned, Voters, you and I in the state of Oregon, will be asked to um, vote in favor of or in opposition to ballot measure 105. Um, Whether or not to repeal the state sanctuary law will be the question. Clatsop County Sheriff Tom Bergen, the chief author of the letter, told OPB the sanctuary law hamstrings law enforcement in the state. If I get an MS-13 or somebody that's a bad guy, ISIS or whatever uh, is here, then I'm... Well, he uses a word I wouldn't, but he's not in a very good position. Uh, He echoed a common refrain from the president and other advocates of tougher immigration laws in the United States. Well, Bergen said that he was uh, more likely to come across a bad guy at the local level and therefore needed more authority to address undocumented immigrants. We're not talking about uh, migrant farm workers, he said. Now, if they're an MS-13 guy and that comes across, our hands are tied. We have a lot less authority to say you're under arrest for A, B or C, and we're going to hold you accountable. Well, my guess is there's going to be a significant amount of campaigning on this uh, issue, uh, providing information and perhaps even misinformation about uh, what this uh, the repeal of sanctuary law may or may not mean. So we're have, uh, going to have to use a great deal of discernment to try to determine what's in the best interest of all the people in the state of Oregon um, and its policy as a sanctuary state. 
Well, the earth is about, uh, well, let's, for a moment, let's just pretend like you're a middle schooler and you're asked to uh, pick who lives and who dies. The earth is about to blow up and there's only room on the spaceship for eight passengers. So who gets left behind? Now, I remember this question being posed to us in somewhat a different way. And whether or not you refuse to answer the question because you don't believe yourself uh, qualified to determine who lives and who dies. But seventh graders at Roberts Middle School in Cuyahoga Falls, Ohio, uh, were assigned the task last week of deciding who got to live and who was doomed to be blown up or rather blown to smithereens, as they put it. The whom to leave behind lesson has caused quite a lot of outrage among moms and dads who believe the assignment sends the wrong message to their children. Uh, For the assignment, students were asked to choose between a list of 12 hypothetical people. Four would be uh, left behind because... Uh, tomorrow, the planet Earth is doomed. Well, this is what identity politics might look like when you determine a person's value based on their sexuality, their skin color, or their bank account. Well, there was an, an accountant with a substance abuse problem, a uh, militant African-American medical student, a 33-year-old Native American manager who does not speak English, the accountant's pregnant wife, a famous novelist with a physical disability, a 21-year-old female Muslim international student, a female movie star who was recently the victim of a sexual assault, a homosexual male professional athlete, an Asian orphaned 12-year-old boy, a 60-year-old Jewish university administrator, and Hispanic clergyman who is against homosexuality. Huh. So I'm, I'm wondering, depending on who the students picked, if in fact they agreed to participate, and when you're in a, a situation where you have an adult um, giving you an assignment for which you are going to be held accountable in an environment your parents have sent you to, I, I imagine there are a few kids who would say, no, this is not an appropriate question to ask uh, a, a 12-year-old. Um, but the list also included an ugly stereotype describing the final choice as a racist armed police officer who's been accused of using excessive force. Well, one wonders who wrote the question. Well, some of the language that was used within the assignment um, uh, would led one to believe that some of the kids might not even understand what it might mean. Again, we're talking about, um, what, 12-year-olds. Uh, anyway, this is the kind of assignment that some kids are being asked to participate in. Mr. Miller said uh, parents should have been consulted before such a lesson was presented to students. This is a city councilman. Uh, some of the language that was uh, used within the assignment was inappropriate, said a, a, another um, uh, member of the council. Uh, he said some of the language uh, could lend a lot of confusion and, in my opinion, just kind of uh, implant certain stereotypes and judgments within these young kids' minds that they shouldn't be having at this young age. And yet this um, was an assignment that was developed by and presented by the school. Well, the school district tells local reporters they are investigating the incident and the teacher is reportedly remorseful. Uh, this is what identity politics looks like when you determine a person's value based on their sexuality, their skin color, or their bank account, or perhaps their occupation and the stereotype associated with it. Um, I bring it up because kids are back in school or will soon be back in school and parents are once again called to be vigilant about what's actually being taught and presented to their sons and daughters as they're preparing them with how to respond to certain things that are likely to come up. This is just one example in a school district far, far away, but not unlike what could happen in a school district close up. I um, uh, think it's important for us as adults to remember that we have the opportunity to pray for schools in particular for administrators and principals, for school teachers. And if you live close to a school, if you have 
sons or daughters, nieces, nephews, grandchildren, kids you just love from your church. Uh, Why don't you pick a school down the road, pick a school close to your church and begin to pray because these kids are facing some very challenging assignments, this being an example of it, and uh, perhaps more difficult things as well. By the way, there was another story that indicated preteen suicides, while rare, are on the rise. On average, there are 123 suicides a day in the United States, and if you or someone you know needs help, you can call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, just as an aside. But uh, preteen suicides, like a a nine-year-old Denver boy last week, remain rare, but um, as their numbers rise, they're getting new attention from researchers. Um, Jamel Miles uh, died on Thursday of suicide. The Denver office of the medical examiner said on Monday, his mother said on Facebook that he'd been bullied by classmates. Um, And this is, of course, a scenario that we're seeing far more often than we ought. Please, we are all the different. um, Please, we are all the different. And that's what makes us the same because we all have one thing in common. We're all different. That's what makes this world beautiful. That's what um, the mother wrote on a post on Facebook. I want justice for my son and every kid who is bullied. I want bullying to end. I never want to hear someone else go through this pain, uh, she wrote on her public Facebook page. Well, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention reports that the teen suicide rate rose by more than 70 percent between 2006 and 2016. Suicide was the 10th leading cause of death for elementary school age children in 2014, according to that same report. And the death rate among 10 to 14 year olds more than doubled um, in 2014. And that number, that's the most recent numbers that we have. It's certainly increased since then. It's a particular concern Uh, to parents, and they say that social media is a big part of the problem, according to psychologists. So as young people are returning to school, um, as they do face the kind of bullying and challenge that um, leads to some making a decision that life is not worth continuing, we as adults can certainly try to help and certainly can be in prayer for them. Up next, we're going to talk with Jim Roberts. He's a research fellow for economic freedom and uh, and growth with the Heritage Foundation. We're going to talk about the U.S.-Mexican trade agreement where Canada falls. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the United States and Mexico have reached an agreement to change parts of NAFTA. In fact, the president suggests changing the name. That's the trade deal that the president has derided for years as unfair. Well, the president announced the agreement from the Oval Office yesterday with Mexican President Enrique Peña Nieto um, uh, dialed in on a conference call. But the deal left uh, open the question of whether Canada, which is the third uh, country in NAFTA, would agree to the change. We're here to talk about uh, what has actually happened, what's pending, and where Canada falls into all of this is Jim Roberts. He is Research Fellow for Economic Freedom and Growth with the Heritage Foundation. Thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks, Georgine. Good to be back with you again. Good to have you. Well, let me ask you, is it right to say that the United States and Mexico have reached an agreement, or is this a tentative agreement that requires the approval of their respective uh, larger uh, political bodies? Yeah, it certainly will require the approval of the U.S. Congress. Uh, It certainly is fair to call it an agreement, and I think uh, Wall Street very much approved of it. Mm -hmm. The market went up yesterday and today. Uh, So there's been a lot of uncertainty, as you've alluded to, about NAFTA. And really, uh, this is an area where the Heritage Foundation has been very happy with many of President Trump's actions and policies. But on trade, we really have kind of parted Mm -hmm. company. We have just disagreed with him on that. 
we think NAFTA has been good for the United States. It's been good for Oregon. Uh, it's been really good for American workers overall. Uh, certainly, in some areas that people can complain about, but in general, uh, the amount of trade that goes back and forth between the U.S. and Canada, and Mexico, has, is huge now compared to 25 years ago. And, and we think it's a good agreement. It certainly needed updating. It's something. It's a 25-year-old agreement before the internet was even a thing. Uh, and there are other issues that uh, that need to be improved. But in general, we're glad to see this step forward. Um, so are the improvements, the, the changes, perhaps is a better word, that the United States and Mexico have agreed to, are they better? Do they improve NAFTA, even if it ends up being called something else, as the president suggested might? Well, you know, no one can really say because nobody's actually seen a text. And the administration doesn't have to provide a text of an agreement until uh, 30 days. Uh, the, the big thing driving this is the election of a new uh, leftist president of Mexico who mm-hmm. takes office December 1st. And under the rules of uh, the, what's so-called fast-track trade promotion authority, the United States uh, the, uh, Trump administration has to give Congress 90 days notice. And that means by the end of this week, that puts a lot of pressure on Canada. And I think that was the intention uh, of doing a quick uh, agreement. Uh, People in Congress, we heritage agree that actually the president uh, can't uh, submit a, a U.S.-Mexico-only agreement under the current uh, law, and it really has to include Canada for Congress to be able to approve it under this fast-track authority. And, of course, we think that that is the way to go anyway, to keep the NAFTA uh, and, and make the improvements, but uh, don't, don't try to do just a U.S.-Mexico-only agreement. Yeah, and that seems to be uh, something the president has has favored, and that is a bilateral agreement rather than a trilateral agreement. Canada was, uh, I suppose, by design, left out of these negotiations. They're encouraged by the fact that the United States and Mexico are talking. But what's the likelihood that Canada will accept? Uh, again, we, we don't know all the details, but what's the likelihood that Canada will become a part of this agreement, given the fact that I understand uh, the uh, uh, the Canadian uh, minister is meeting s- somewhere in Washington today. Well, they're under immense pressure to go to get an agreement uh, because they, they would be very, very devastated. The Canadian economy depends heavily on exports to the United States, uh, much more than we do over Canada. So uh, they're, they're going to be under a lot of pressure to, to come up with something and probably make concessions that uh, they wouldn't otherwise do. But, but we're just going to have to see what, what actually the two parties agree. Uh, and what, in fact, the three parties agree by the end of the week and hope that uh, that there will be an agreement. Do we have some general outline of uh, what's in the agreement, for example, with regard to auto manufacturing, labor standards and so on, that gives us at least some idea of what this new arrangement uh, might require? Well, we do actually, from the announcement and the press conferences that have been held, uh, we haven't first seen the textbook. And it is troubling. We, we don't really agree that... Uh, the auto sector part of this agreement is going to really be a step forward for the United States. It's going to really be a situation of what you know what we call managed trade, uh, and uh, and trying to increase uh, you know auto worker jobs, but really at the possible expense of a lot of other American jobs. So that's one area that we're not too happy about. We are happy that there are other sections that have been retained, like like uh, investor settlement disputes, especially in the big ticket items like investments in energy and infrastructure. So we're happy that they're in there. There have been some improvements on intellectual property protection, on bringing up the agreement to the digital era and, and the uh, big Internet-based uh, companies that are so that the United States has the lead on. 
uh, some improvements on agriculture. Uh, but the auto sector, uh, from what we have heard, it's uh, it's probably just going to mean that Americans are going to have to pay more for their cars, and I don't think it's going to really create a lot of auto sector jobs for the United States. But uh, overall, if that's the price of uh, keeping the overall agreement in place, it's probably worth considering. Now, my understanding is there also is a sunset clause. How does that differ from NAFTA as it exists now? The agreement, at least what we know of it, uh, would last for 16 years, would uh, be reviewed every six years. How different is that from what we've had in NAFTA? Yeah, uh, as you know, there hasn't been any sunset in the current agreement. but And we were very concerned about the Originally, they were talking about a five-year sunset which would really have a chilling effect on trade and investment. So we're happy to see the extension of uh, 16 years and a six-year review. That's that's an improvement uh, because investors, especially in, in big-ticket uh, investments and trade, really need a, a longer horizon of stability and predictability that, that the NAFTA had given. So I think the 16 years is an improvement, and that, I think that's a result of a lot of pressure being brought to bear on the administration from many, many sources that have been benefiting from the current agreement. Now, as you mentioned, the timeline is somewhat compressed in that Congress has to uh, sign off on on all of this, as do the other two signatories. Um, What are we likely to see in the the short term and what should we expect in the long term with regard to establishing this as the new standard for trade between the three countries? Well, we're likely to see an agreement by the end of this week with Canada that would then uh, mean that the three parties would uh, would be agreed on a new agreement. Congress would be notified by the Trump administration via a letter that agreement has been reached uh, kind of in principle. And then within 30 days, uh, the Trump administration would have to physically notify Congress of the text of a new agreement. Then there would be a 60-day period of kind of back and forth with Congress over the terms of that agreement, with Congress having limited itself to uh, the number of changes and amendments it could make because of the fast-track authority. And then in 90 days uh, from the end of this week, the president and the other two uh, leaders, which would be still, as you mentioned, uh, Mexican President Enrique Peña Nieto, who leaves office uh, November 30th, he would presumably he and Prime Minister Trudeau of Canada would, with, with President Trump, sign a new NAFTA agreement that would then uh, go to Congress for approval and and uh, all the relevant legislation that would have to be passed. So this is the beginning of what will be a, a lengthy process. Yeah, it sure is. In fact, uh, Georgine, you know, even if Congress gets this agreement December first, it's very likely it, it's actually inevitable that the Congress there will be there will be the new Congress elected this November that will take office in January, and we don't know yet whether the Democrats or Republicans will control that House House of Representatives, which has to originate all revenue bills under the mm-hmm. terms of the Constitution. So, if, in fact, if the Democrats take over, it's really anybody's guess as to what they would do with the with this agreement. Um, but uh, that's, of course, completely unknown at this point. Um, I think the president has made a political determination that this agreement will play well in some states, especially in the upper Midwest, the states that really made the difference for him in his election. And uh, I guess he's thinking that uh, this agreement is going to maybe help him to re- retain control, the Republican Party can retain, retain control of the House. But, but we're just going to have to see. Yeah, we will have to do that. Hey, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Really appreciate it. Sure thing. Nice to talk to you. You too. Again, Jim Roberts is Research Fellow for Economic Freedom and Growth at the Heritage Foundation. Up next, we'll wrap things up. So stay with us.
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, it was just a short time ago that Franklin Graham and the Decision America Pacific Northwest Tour was right here in our community in uh, Oregon and in Washington. I received an email, as did uh, many of you, I suppose, uh, today saying thank you, Oregon and Washington. And Franklin Graham, uh, reflecting back and looking forward, said what a blessing it was to be with you for the Decision America Pacific Northwest Tour. We praised God for the over 70,000 people who heard the good news of Jesus Christ at these events and for the nearly 3,700 who responded to the invitation to commit their lives to him. uh, We're grateful for believers like you who made this gospel ministry possible. If you weren't able to attend one of the uh, tour stops, you can browse photos and read more about it. You can go to the uh, webpage for that if you didn't receive the uh, the email. But he goes on to say, rather than just a one-time event, it's my prayer that this will be the beginning of a movement, a movement of prayer. Now, don't we all need to be engaged in the kind of prayer that that not only rattles off our own personal concerns, but sees our place in the kingdom of God and the community God has placed us to be praying for uh, his kingdom to come in the hearts of uh, men and women in our community. He goes on to write that I'm asking God to help Christians across the region to stand strong for Jesus Christ. Will you join me in praying for open doors to share his love with others and for revival to sweep your community, your state and our nation? Here are some of the ways you can uh, let your light so shine before men that they may glorify your father in heaven. And that, of course, is a quote from Matthew five sixteen. That's the New King James Version. Now, these are the suggestions that he makes. Make a list of those you know who need to hear the gospel and pray for them daily. Now, this shouldn't be difficult for us, and I would hope that many of us are already engaged in praying for those um, that we care about who don't yet know Jesus on a daily basis. Share a simple gospel presentation through social media. Tell others what Jesus has done in your life. In other words, sharing your testimony. And pray for what God is doing through the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association and Christians like you in communities across the country and around the world. And then uh, you can get regular ministry updates if you'd like to be a part of um, what they are doing. Again, you can go to their website for that information. He concludes by writing, I thank God for the opportunity to see people in your city and on every stop of the tour, come forward in response to the invitation to accept Christ as their Savior. We give him all the glory for changing hearts across Oregon and Washington. May God richly bless you as you stand for him. Again, sincerely, Franklin Graham. Make known with boldness the mysteries of the gospel, Ephesians 6.19. So just a parting uh, thank you from the uh, Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, Franklin Graham having so recently Uh, been here. Well, for some of our listeners, your children are already in school. For others, they're going to be in school next week. But I was struck by one North Carolina mom who apparently thought it important to teach her young son to be respectful. Now, we have a real problem with discipline and lack of respect and regard and all of that all across the country. But for this North Carolina kid who's 10, he was actually punished for trying to be respectful as taught by his parents to his teacher. Well, the mother of the 10-year-old boy in North Carolina is outraged that her son was recently punished for calling his fifth grade teacher, ma'am. Now, I have to tell you, when I grew up, we spoke to our elders, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. It said nothing more than we respect you as our elders, and so we want to address you in a way that honors your status, your, your status as an elder. Uh, the mother says, and her name is Teresa Wilson, I was in disbelief. Uh, Wilson noticed her uh, son 
uh, Tamarian was not himself when she picked him up uh, from the bus stop earlier in the week. I asked him what was wrong, she says, and he told me that he got in trouble for saying ma'am to a teacher. Well, the mom was rightfully confused. Well, inquiring further, uh, mom asked her son to give her more detail about the incident. That's when the fifth grader at Northeast Carolina Preparatory School uh, in um, Tarboro, North Carolina, pulled out a piece of lined paper with the word ma'am written dozens of times. Well, Wilson, the mom, was shocked, especially when her son, Tamarian, told her that the teacher, who has not been formally identified, told him that he was required to return the piece of paper with a parent's signature. Well, the young boy also claimed that the teacher threatened to throw something at him during the incident. He was disappointed because he felt like he had done something wrong. Um, well, he uh, the next afternoon, mom went to the school to meet with Tamarian's teacher and the school principal. With her, she brought a separate piece of paper on which her son had written the definition of ma'am. According to the Oxford Dictionary, ma'am is, a defined, is defined rather as a term of respectful or polite address used for a woman. Well, Wilson claims um, Tamarian's teacher told her that uh, her son was getting on her nerves when he called her ma'am, but couldn't give him a reason why that was bad. Well, the teacher um, also claimed that Tamarian knew that she wasn't serious when she allegedly threatened to throw something at him. Adult, kid, he's trying to be respectful. The adult threatens to throw something. He might not have got that. Well, Tamarian has been placed in a different teacher's class since the incident occurred. In a statement uh, to ABC 11, the local media there, an official with the school called the situation a personal matter, which had been uh, handled appropriately by the K-7 principal. One would wonder what that um, handling would look like. Still, Wilson said she plans to call the school board on Monday to see if they're really going to handle it, though she didn't elaborate on what this would uh, entail. This is about my child being respectful, then threatened to be hit with something. This isn't about racism, as some people have um, made it out to be, so she's not uh, broadening it to uh, anything beyond, by the way, he's African-American. Apparently, the teacher is not. Uh, she was referring to some of the comments on a family member's Facebook post where um, she detailed the incident. Moving forward, Wilson said she has um, encouraged her son to always be respectful to his elders, even if they don't want to be called ma'am. Is this what uh, happens from raising a child in a good way, she asked. Well, it's a very good question. A spokesman for the Northeast Carolina Preparatory School did not immediately respond to questions about how this was going to be handled and what uh, their expectations were moving forward. We've got all kinds of problems in classrooms all across the country and teachers complaining about disciplinary problems and not having sufficient resource to manage those problems. Here you have a 10-year-old kid who is trained by his mother to be respectful to the adults in his life, including his teacher, who punishes him for attempting to do just that. Now, as I mentioned, a lot of kids are in school. Some won't be in school until next week. I know there are moms and grandparents all across the country who are praying specifically for classrooms, for schools, for teachers, for principals, for administrators. And if you're not a part of a formal group, let me encourage you to pick a school down the road, a school where you know you see kids walking to and from every day uh, when the school year uh, begins in earnest, and pray for them. Uh, clearly, there's confusion in the camp, and perhaps uh, we can pray uh, that uh, there would be wisdom in handling children and children would learn to be respectful and not disciplined for attempting to do just that. Well, tomorrow being Wednesday, we're going to talk with Mary Lowe. She is the um, author of Ecologies of Faith in a Digital Age, Spiritual Growth Through Online Education. That's coming up on Wednesday. 
Want to thank James Blind for producing and engineering today's program, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.